Amen. As you remain standing, if you have a Bible, I hope you do, you can grab it and make your way to Exodus chapter 20 as we read the sermon text this morning, continuing our ongoing study through the Bible's second book. We come this morning to the seventh commandment, just the five verses there in Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. Let me read that very brief law unto us and then pray briefly for our time and we'll begin together. So here now, as God speaks to us once again through His covenant word, you shall not commit adultery. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we, we do ask that you would give us ears to hear this morning, that you would give us a heart that is open to your truth by your spirit, that we might understand the fullness of this word unto us. Lord, move in our hearts by the Spirit that we might find this law driving us to Jesus Christ in faith and repentance. The Spirit also might be stirring within us renewed power and vigor to obey your word, to walk in godliness and holiness. Help us then to hear with earnestness as dying people for me to preach as a dying preacher with boldness and truth. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. One of the most infamous typos in church history happened in 1631, and it came when a few publishers reprinted the King James Bible, yet they omitted a certain word, and it was that one word's omission that caused King Charles and the Archbishop of Canterbury to to fine these publishers 300 pounds, and back then in the early 17th century, that was tantamount to a lifetime's worth of wages. And the one word that they omitted was a word from our text today. It was a word, not. So Exodus 20, verse 14, in their version of the King James Bible read, You shall commit adultery. And it became known as the Wicked Bible. And government authorities kept only 11 copies and burned all the rest. I suppose today if government authorities in our nation came across a Bible that said, you shall commit adultery, they would have little problem with it. Certainly no Bible burning would ensue, such as the nature of our context and culture's disposition towards this command. As far as we come now to the seventh commandment of the ten that we're looking at over these months in our ongoing studies through Exodus, it's good to remember that these words are meant to do various things in our life as God is driving us to glorify Him in all things. There are times in which we ought to think of these ten words, surely as a ten-cord whip that is driving us to the Lord Jesus in appropriate fear of the ways in which we have fallen short. But my preference as we continue to study these Ten Commandments is that you would think of them less like a ten-cord whip and more like this ten-star constellation that God has placed in the spiritual sky above, and it's this constellation that He's using to show us the Lord Jesus Christ. It's also a scripture pencil that God is giving us to make sure that we know the fullness of Christ's holiness in our place, His perfect obedience to God's law. And like a number of the commandments, this one comes to us, doesn't it? In the negative, if you want to put it positively, however, it simply is a command that says, live in purity. 
That's, that's all the command really points to. And what we're going to look at this morning is a number of different things, not only in the Old Testament in the context there uh, of Exodus, but much like we did with the Sixth Commandment and we'll do with other commandments spanning the spectrum of God's whole counsel that we may understand exactly how, not just the Old Testament authors, but also the Savior Himself and the Apostles understood uh, the right teaching of this seventh word. So first of all, we're going to notice how it's a call to purity on the outside. And then secondly, purity on the inside. So purity on the outside comes, of course, with those five words given to us in verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. In the original language, it's just two words. No adultery. So obvious. It needs no explanation, no commentary. Yet, students, I wonder how you would define adultery. What exactly is this sin God speaks about here in the seventh word from the fire and smoke at Sinai? Or here's a simple way to understand adultery. It's the sinful action of sexual intimacy between a spouse with someone who is not his or her spouse. Does that make sense? So it's a sinful action of sexual intimacy between a man or woman with someone who is not his or her spouse. And the reason it's important to make sure we have an acute understanding of what the actual command means is because the Bible uses different words for different sexual sins. And even attaches different punishments to different sexual sins. So one of the more dominant other sexual sins that you'll find throughout the Bible is a sin called fornication. uh, Which just means it's a sinful activity of sexual intimacy between two unmarried people. And if you scan your way through the Old Testament law codes, you would see the degree to which God treats adultery with utmost seriousness. Because in the Old Testament time, in context there of Israel in the ancient East... If you found an unmarried man and woman engaged in sexual activity, so it's a sin, it's a sin of fornication, they were, as a result of their sin, to get married. That was the consequence, if you will, of their action. Yet, if you found someone who was married, sexually active with someone who wasn't his or her spouse, they were to die for their sin, both of them. Capital punishment was required. Execution was necessary. Such was the nature of the seriousness of this command. So you want to notice, first of all, it's prohibition. It's a prohibition of sinful sexual activity between two spouses is really what it is at its core. And they're not married. It's simple enough, isn't it? So why is it then that God attaches such seriousness to a sin against the seventh commandment? Let me give you a few reasons why, according to the Bible. Number one, it breaks a promise. Uh, We know that the marriage relationship is a covenant relationship. That's why vows, promises are made. And so when someone commits adultery, they're saying, my passions are more important than my promise. My physical urges are more significant than the vow that I made to my spouse. Secondly, it steals from others. Have you ever thought about how the seventh commandment, breaking it, is... Also breaking the Eighth Commandment, because 1 Corinthians chapter 7 tells us that not only by virtue of marriage, the, the two, a husband and a wife, become one flesh, uh, now it also says there's something true about their relationship to each other's bodies. So for example, what the text would tell you is, my wife Emily, my body belongs to her, and her body belongs to me. Therefore, to commit adultery is to steal something that isn't yours, namely, another person that belongs to someone else. But thirdly, and perhaps most significantly, yet often most forgotten in our time, is that it preaches a false gospel. Because you need to know, I hope many of you 
do know this. Ephesians 5, which gives us the longest teaching on marriage and all the Bible, it tells us that marriage is genuinely meant to preach a sermon to, to the watching world. Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2. He says, there are, of course, the words that God used related to Adam and Eve. For the man shall leave his father and mother. The two shall cling to each other and become one flesh. And Paul says, this is a profound mystery. And he says, I am meaning that it refers to Christ and the church. So marriage is supposed to be this declaration, this display of the gospel truth, the, the purity of Christ's affection and love, his perfect covenant loyalty towards his spouse. And adultery then is preaching a message to the world that's the exact opposite of that good news, isn't it? That a, a groom would go after a different lover. That a bride would go after a different lover. It defames at its core the reality of the gospel that we so desperately need, but also sincerely profess. So it's a prohibition, isn't it? You shall not commit adultery. But notice, secondly, the assumption. You see how the commandment clearly assumes something. What is it? Well, it's the sacredness and goodness of marriage, isn't it? If we're talking about sexual sin in the context of a covenant relationship, therefore we have to say that the Bible is clearly assuming here in Exodus the sacredness and goodness of the marriage covenant. So it's why later on in the New Testament, the apostles will talk about men and women burning up with sinful lust and passion. And the pastoral counsel of the apostles is get married. But you need to know that having a spouse is not what prevents you from sinning against the seventh commandment. It's not merely having a spouse, but it's loving your spouse that God gives to help you grow in purity. So the first command wasn't it even given to humankind in the book of Genesis. It was one about the goodness of the marriage relationship, be fruitful and multiply, that one man and one woman were to come together for the purposes of pleasure and protection and procreation. It's, it's a commandment then that is prohibiting sin, but it's also assuming the righteousness and the goodness that belongs to the marriage covenant, which is why the wise teacher of Proverbs chapter 5 can tell husbands, be intoxicated with the love of your wife. For this is a good thing that God has given to him. But students and children understand it is a good thing that is bound to one context, which is the covenant relationship of marriage. Be pure on the outside. But then as you scan Many of the other major texts relate to the seventh commandment. In the rest of Scripture, you see it's also called to be pure on the inside. Some of you will remember back to a time in 1998 when the president of our nation at that time was embroiled in a sexual scandal. And it was a scandal over something that he had done with someone who wasn't his wife. And he stood before the national population on live TV and said, I'm going to make this very clear. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. And if you remember the context and happen to know the context, it's true by the letter of the law, at least from the seventh commandment of which we're thinking today, he hadn't committed external adultery. Yet, what we're going to see, according to Christ's application and explanation of the commandment, in every way he had broken God's law. For Flip your way forward in your Bible to Matthew chapter 5. As we did last week with the Sixth Commandment, we want to understand what, what Jesus says is true about the internal realities of God's law. 
And when you come to this most famous sermon of Jesus, he's speaking to his disciples there on the mountain, and you can almost use as a summary verse, and the exhortation from this sermon is, your righteousness must exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees if you're to see the kingdom of heaven. Because the scribes and the Pharisees scrupulously obeying the law in external ways, but Jesus is saying that righteousness internally is actually not obeying the law in any way. Thus, Jesus can say, notice verse 27 and 28, Regarding the seventh commandment, you heard it said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. He's showing us, isn't he, the fullness, the broadness of this command. That it's no mere prohibition against an external action. It's a prohibition against all impure thoughts, all impure words, all impure motives. That you can commit adultery, yes, physically, but you can also commit adultery spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. It flies in the face, doesn't it? Of what many in our time and context understand to be true about a life of faithfulness and fidelity. This was a couple of years ago. Some of you might remember that this major online dating site got hacked. And thousands and thousands of names of their registrants were released to the public. And it was an online dating site that attracted attention because it flew under the slogan of life is short, have an affair. Such is the way of the world. Or of course the way of Jesus Christ says, yeah, life is short. But happiness comes through holiness that this sin is so great that we need purity in every part of our body. Thus the Heidelberg Catechism says, The seventh commandment forbids all impure actions, looks, talk, thoughts, or desires, and whatever may incite someone to them. Or what we read even earlier from our church's shorter catechism, it requires the preservation of our own and our neighbor's purity in word and thought and behavior. Think then with me for a few minutes about common sins against the seventh commandment in our time. Things that some of us know, perhaps some of us have forgotten. Number one, you could include, of course, breaking the seventh commandment means immodesty. For you know your Bible well enough, I hope, that modesty is a reality of biblical sexuality, but also then biblical spirituality. That if you are married, your body belongs to your spouse, not to the eyes of others. Secondly, it's the sin of homosexuality. As the Bible is assuming here clearly that there is one kind of marriage that God permits. That of an exclusive loyalty between a man and a woman. And parents, let me encourage you in this. I trust that you're raising your children in a way to understand godly sexual ethics in an overly sexualized culture. And make sure you're communicating to him the truth regarding just the nature of what the Bible teaches about marriage. Lest you think that they've assumed the truth and someone comes along the way and leads them astray. As Romans chapter 1 tells us that a man with a man and a woman with a woman is unnatural. Thus it's against God's law. Thirdly, you could also add the sin of divorce falls under the seventh commandment being broken, or at least a certain kind of divorce. If your Bible's still open to Matthew chapter 5, you'll notice Jesus moves immediately from his comments about the seventh commandment and lust into verse 31 and 32 that talks about divorce, what we might call unbiblical divorce, where he has this famous exception clause that whoever divorces his or her spouse, except for the condition of adultery, and then goes and gets remarried, have committed adultery with that person. 
So the Bible does give two grounds, we understand, for biblical divorce, which is adultery and abandonment. But for any other reasons, like our nation tending to understand no-fault divorce as something of a human right, the divorce itself becomes a breaking of the seventh commandment. But let me situate your attention on one final thing, Uh, one final reality that is very much like a pandemic and plague in our time, which is the sin of pornography. Parents, I hope you're preparing your children for this type of an assault on their spirituality, the temptation that Satan will yield against them in this way. You surely don't need me to rattle off statistics that overwhelmingly prove the pandemic-like, plague-like quality that belongs to pornography. We're told that something like 90% of 16-year-olds have viewed pornographic images or videos by the time they reach that age. And even if the statistics are thus off, just a tick or two, the point is it is a plague or pandemic. It flies immediately, doesn't it, if you scan your eyes back up to verse 28. What Jesus says we cannot do is look at another with lustful intent. I tend to think that this is the pastoral problem that belongs to this generation that pastors and church leaders have to deal with more often than many people realize. Just last year, I was listening to an interview with a woman who serves in this ministry at one of the largest seminaries in our country, and it's a ministry to the seminary students' wives, so the wives of these men that are training for gospel ministry. And the interviewer asked her just about the nature of kind of the counseling, discipling of of these ladies that are preparing to serve in a variety of ways as their husband, Lord willing, gets into pastoral ministry. And the interviewer asked, what was the dominant concern of those women that she was counseling? She said, you know, many, many years ago, which was really a few decades back, there was one dominant concern in all the counseling that I was doing. And it was the women coming to me and saying, how can I serve my husband best when it seems like all he thinks about is sexual activity? And then she said, but it's totally flipped on its head now. That They all come to me with one dominant concern. How can I even get my husband interested in sexual activity in marriage? And so the interviewer rightly said, well, what do you think accounts for the change? And she said, well, I can only chalk it up to the prevalence and pervasive reality of pornography. And one of the best and largest seminaries in our country. If we don't understand the plague-like pandemic that belongs to pornography, we're not going to go very far, are we, ever, in understanding the holiness and godliness that God calls us to in Jesus Christ. So you need to see two more things about what it means to be pure on the inside from the truth of God's Word. The first of which is just the statement, don't be deceived. Paul loves to say this in his letters. For example, Ephesians chapter 5, he says, don't be deceived. The sexually immoral and the impure will not inherit the kingdom of Christ and God. It is that serious. This is no just kind of, hey, we understand it type of sin in our culture today. This is sin that means people can't see God. That they deserve His wrath. They deserve His punishment. They deserve His death. Don't be deceived into thinking it is no big deal. But understand, Satan wants you to leave you there. The world in certain ways wants to leave you there too. Uh, But Jesus wants to continue by telling you, no, don't just be deceived, but also don't despair that I have come to pay the penalty that belongs to adulterers. That's why oftentimes in the Old Testament you'll find the prophets coming and summoning God's people to repentance. And they even talk about sin itself as nothing more than spiritual adultery. Because you're loving someone other than your great lover who is God himself. That Jesus, when he hung on the cross at Calvary, he who of utter purity and sinlessness, hangs there for impure people. 
he who never committed adultery in word, thought, or deed, hangs there for people who have committed adultery in word, thought, or deed. That if you would simply but turn from your sin and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, you would know that that penalty of death he took in your place that you might receive his spotless, perfect, completely pure righteousness by faith alone. That in Jesus Christ it's possible. It genuinely is to be pure on the outside and to be pure on the inside. For Christmas a few months ago, I gave our elders a book that was written by an historian, a recent publication. The historian's name's Carl Truman. The book is called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And I commend it to you uh, to read. Just recognize it. it should be slow reading. It's a relatively dense book, but it's a relatively uh, brilliant book. It helps us understand how we've gotten to the point culturally, even in this area of sexual sin. And he says at one point in the book, he says, Every age has had its darkness and its dangers. The task of the Christian is not to whine about the moment in which he or she lives, but to understand its problems and respond appropriately to them. It's not the task of the Christian living in the culture of the 21st century to whine as though it's much more difficult to be pure towards the Lord, to complain about the unique temptations that do belong to life in this age, but to recognize that the Bible calls us to respond appropriately and purely to the world in which we live. So what I want to do as we begin to close is help you see five things, five other truths from God's Word related to the Seventh Commandment. Number one, the Seventh Commandment calls us to repentance. It calls us to repentance. That's the truth, isn't it, of King David, the man after God's own heart, who committed adultery with Bathsheba. And later on, he writes Psalm 51, which is this brilliant psalm of confession and repentance. And he says, against you, Lord, and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Uh, he recognizes that the sin of adultery is, is not ultimately against Bathsheba or Uriah, her husband. But it's ultimately against God himself. For it's his law that he has broken. It's his character that he has defamed. And he can repent because of the second truth. The second of the seventh commandment calls us to forgiveness. Because in another text where Paul is talking about don't be deceived. There's one which we read earlier today in the order of service a couple of times. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And he says, don't be deceived. Sexually immoral, adulterers, impure people. They will not see the kingdom of heaven. They will not see the kingdom of God. And then he says, and such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the power of his spirit. Such were some of you. I trust you might be able to say that today. I used to be one that walked in impurity, but I know the power of Christ's forgiving, cleansing blood. And maybe you're in here today and you recognize the need to repent of the sin that deserves death. That you might even say today for the first time, yesterday I was such a person. But today, I now know the name of Jesus Christ and the power of His Spirit that leads to the third thing. The seventh commandment calls us to holiness. First Thessalonians chapter 4 has this section where Paul's talking about the Christian life. And he says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. So students, if you ever get to that place in your teenage years or college years where you wonder, what is God's will for my life? Here's the biblical answer in the quickest compass, your sanctification. That's what God wants from you. But in context, what he follows immediately that with is a, is a particular point of holiness. 
Because he simply says that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness. That's what God longs for to be true about his people. What a witness that would be to the watching world. A people who are utterly convinced of the need for godliness and holiness as they pursue purity in Jesus Christ. Fourthly, the seventh commandment calls us to vigilance. To vigilance. If you still have Matthew chapter 5 open, notice what Jesus says in verse 28 and 29, or verse 29 and verse 30. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. Jesus assumes, therefore, this militant disposition that his people are going to have in the pursuit of purity. Anything that stands in the way, get rid of it. And there are stories, abundant stories, of many people throughout the ages that have have taken this commandment to radical implications. I could tell you of one church father who castrated himself in light of this command. I could tell you of St. Francis of Assisi, whenever that he felt lustful thoughts, he would throw himself into the snow. St. Benedict, he'd throw himself into thorn bushes. Or St. Bernard of Clairvaux, he'd just throw himself into an icy lake whenever he had lustful thoughts. So desperate were they to walk in purity before the Lord. What was the last thing that you cut off, cast aside, removed from your life so that you might put lust to death? Fifthly, finally, the seventh commandment calls us to blessedness. Just a few minutes before in this same sermon in Matthew chapter 5, in verse 8, that he gave a promise to his people in what we tend to call the Beatitudes. He said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There is one sight that can extinguish all of your sinful longings for sinful sights here on earth. And it's a mind and a heart and a soul that is desperate to see the king in his beauty. That you long to see the Savior in his risen, ascended, exalted glory. So earnestly, with such affection and passion. Why would I look at that? For I'm going to see him one day. Do you want to know how to live in purity? Outside and inside. Live in repentance towards Christ. Live from the forgiveness of Christ and his holiness with his vigilance that you might receive his blessedness. Let's pray together. Our Father, we understand by your spirit how we have fallen short of your law. This specific word that you have given to us in countless ways. Father, we know that there are many in the room even this day struggling desperately in secret sin. We know our enemy is desperate to keep them isolated. May they find the free, forgiving power that is offered in the blood of Jesus Christ. Lord, help us to cast our eyes on things above where Christ is. Longing evermore to see him and the fullness of his splendor and majesty. And let that sight erase all other sinful sights that we might long for in this life. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.